Head over to Mark chapter 1. We are starting a new series of studies this morning. There's a couple other guys that were imprisoned, but we did we ran our six-week course there. So, okay, after Paul and Joseph and Samson, you're you're done. So, but we're starting a new series of studies this morning. Uh, I'm going to be calling it "Hitting the Mark" for our reference. And what we're going to do is we're going to take the Gospel of Mark one chapter at a time. We're going to read it and then draw out a devotional theme or two as we see what God has revealed to us about himself, as we see what Jesus did, what he said, and then see how we are to respond to that revelation. So always good to spend time in the Gospels, of course. And so we got a lot of ground to cover, so let's take a look at our text, starting in verse 1 of chapter 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Who will prepare your way before uh, who will prepare your way before you? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remissions of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts. And the angels ministered to him. Now after John was put into prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, and believe in the gospel." And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, Follow me, I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately, on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they all, uh, were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region of Galilee. <clears throat> now, as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came uh, and took her by the hand and lifted her up. 
and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone's looking for you. But he said to them, Let us go into the next town, so that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. Now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him, and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus, moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched the leper, said to him, I am willing. Be cleansed. As soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And he strictly warned him, and sent him away at once, and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely, and to spread the matter, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in deserted places. So they came to him from every direction. Uh, as it's always pointed out, Mark's gospel moves at an incredibly fast pace. You know, you look at Matthew or, you know, some of the other passages of scripture where they're going through genealogies and stuff like that. Mark has none of that. We're just, we're just moving, moving, moving here. He packs three and a half years of teaching and ministry and Jesus into just a few pages, really. It's only fitting then that we're going to try to survey each chapter in about 15 or 20 minutes each Wednesday. So what we see in these 45 verses is twofold for me. First, you see an incredible amount of God's activity. You know, we see the effort of heaven as this book opens, uh, and, and we read about the Lord doing just a lot of stuff as we look at these verses, just all the stuff that Jesus was doing. Uh, he was teaching and traveling. He was being tempted. He's healing and praying and calling people. He's casting out demons. I mean, there's just a ton of heavenly activity. God speaking down from above there. Jesus speaking out to crowds and to individuals. And right from the get-go, we learn that God had this long-held intention to do all of these things. There at the beginning of the text, it, it points out, hey, remember the messages you were given in the prophets? And, and then it describes John the Baptist as this forerunner that God sent in, who is going to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. And, and then Jesus comes to his guys a few verses later and says, you know, come on, let's go over to Galilee and tell people that the kingdom of God that, that God has been talking about for a long time is at hand and it's time to reconcile man and move forward with this plan of redemption. And so you, you get the sense that it was all finally unfolding according to the Lord's will, that after all those many centuries between Adam and Eve's sin and this point, it was finally, you know, really coming about in this very dramatic and very busy way. But mankind was asked to play a part. Man is called in this text to repent, to believe, and to follow Jesus Christ. Now then on top of that, there are all these acts and miracles that Jesus was doing. And so in just a few verses, we see an incredible fervor of activity when it comes to what God was doing at the time, what God was doing on the earth and, and through uh, the people there. And it, it wasn't just this sort of just, well, Jesus came down and did some, you know, sleight of hand tricks. It wasn't this just kind of present in the moment stuff where Jesus healed a leper and then he was 
you know, not doing anything else. Jesus also went around and he, and he was pulling these specific guys aside and he was going to every synagogue and he was preaching to these multitudes and he was saying, hey, there is a future that I need you to prepare for. Uh, you know, I have a plan for your life. I have a course that I want you to go on. And he purposed to go and teach the people how they were to respond to all that God was doing in all their synagogues as they went on the road and in all of these situations. So on the one hand, you see this incredible amount of heavenly activity. And then the second thing that you know I pull out of this chapter on a when we're looking at it from a survey view has to do with those people that Jesus interacted with. A whole bunch of people, um, their responses. There are just a bunch of responses detailed for us in this text. Some good responses, some not so good responses. There's really too many for us to look at in detail, but each one is a good measuring rod by which we can line up our hearts and our own thoughts toward God as we go through the text and say, okay, Jesus talking to this person or this group, if that was me and he said that to me, how am I responding to that in my own life? Like Jesus did in this text, God has called all of us to three things, repentance, belief in him, and to follow him. Um, that's specifically listed in Mark chapter 1, but it's true for us as well. Now, while being born again is a one-time transaction, you don't have to get saved over and over again, belief and repentance are things that are ongoing in our lives. They are uh, uh, continual things that we practice. We'll see that unfold in the lives of the disciples for sure during these studies as, you know, Jesus keeps coming to them and doing different things, and every now and then he has to say, man, you, you guys... Do you really not believe still? Are you you're, you of little faith? And, and, and so belief and then repentance before God are ongoing things in the life of a disciple. But each of us are called upon by Jesus in a variety of ways. First, from the text here, we see that we are all called upon to prepare the way of the Lord in our lives. Because God has a work that he's wanted to do from eternity past as he sees through time and looks at in our life and desires to be in relationship with us and then desires to do something with our lives, then we are called upon to prepare that way of the Lord and make paths straight. Uh, it means that we are to center our lives not on self, but on Christ, changing the pursuit of life to be the presence of God. You know, um, that's what we are called upon individually, saying that, yes, I am going to order and structure and modify this temporal physical life so that Jesus Christ can come in and do what it is that he wants to do. Um, that's what we're called upon to do. Things like, you know, from this text, we see Jesus wants to teach me and correct me and even rebuke me if necessary so that he can then call me to a specific ministry where I can serve him and glorify him and spread the gospel. Uh, you see this in Simon and Andrew and James and John, this moment of decision and response as Jesus calls out to them, uh, and he has this incredible plan, and we know from the rest of the New Testament all that he wanted to do in their lives, and we marvel at that. But there is this moment here where he says, okay, now it's your turn to respond. I, I've, I've sent that call out. And these were men who were willing to prepare their physical lives and their physical schedules to be used by God to do an eternal work. You know, we love to see their response in this chapter. We love it. We, we see this and we're like, man, this is such an incredible moment in their lives and in, and in the New Testament as Jesus Christ walks up to them, these, you know, young, probably, you know, uh, well, young, certainly, uh, you know, not well-loved in society group of fishermen. He says, hey, follow me. And then they just leave their nets and, and they go. And we just marvel at that. We love it. But we also need to understand that the same way that Christ has called them 
He has called us, and so we must respond to God. We must respond to the call of Christ. But let's take a look at another response or two. This demon-possessed guy at around verse 23 really sticks out to me. Uh, it was interesting to me that a demon would want to attend a church every week. <laughs> now, of course, you know, as we look at you know, the doctrine of demons or the, or the doctrine of the devil, we understand that, of course, the devil desires to bring strife and division into the church. And, and it makes a little more sense of why you know, a demon-possessed guy would be like, yeah, I'm headed over to synagogue today. I'm going to cause some trouble here. But really, it's a strange situation. As we come across this, and it's talking about Jesus preaching and stuff, and it's like, and in this synagogue, there's this demon-possessed man. Uh, but then I just started thinking about this devotionally, and I started thinking about, okay, well, this is an example of um, Jesus coming to someone and, and, and calling him to something and, and doing something with him. And, you know, if that was me, how would I respond? And, you know, kind of measuring my life toward that. And, and devotionally speaking, while it's clear, it's absolutely clear that a Christian cannot be possessed by a demon. It's clear from the Bible. It was interesting for me to think about how I get comfortable with sin in my own life sometimes, how, how we carry sin around with us from time to time. You know, I can think, man, how could this guy bring a demon into the synagogue, and how could these other you know, people there put up with that? Or, you know. But then I look within myself, and I, I have to be realistic and think, yeah, you know, of course I'm bringing some sort of uncleanness into God's house. I'm not perfect either. I'm not without sin either. You know, some bitterness, some resentment, some jealousy, some self-seeking, some something that is not, you know, perfect and godly. You know, of course, we all carry those things around with us. Now, again, I'm not saying a Christian can be demon-possessed, but it, when we carry sin in our lives and the Lord comes to us, uh, specifically in the church, and when he comes to us and calls us to repentance or when he rebukes us, what is my response going to be to that? How do I respond when the Lord looks at me and says, that is enough, I want that gone from your life, you know, and rebukes that sin from our life? You know, I realized yesterday it was just something I hadn't really thought about for myself before. Maybe that's a sad thing, but, you know, I realized that, you know, if I can't remember the last time I repented of something before God, there's probably something wrong in my sensitivity to the Holy Spirit because we're all imperfect and because we all are tempted and we're, we're out here you know, trying to fight against the old nature and everything. And Paul talks a lot about that in the book of Romans, and we'll get to that on Wednesday nights. But you know, if, if, if I can't remember the last time I actually came before the Lord and said, you know, Lord, I just, I'm turning from this. I repent of this. I want you to deal with this in my life. There's probably something wrong. I'm, I'm probably not listening for the loving correction that Jesus brings to his people. I'm probably not responding to the Spirit the way I should be. I'm probably carrying some sin around with me when Jesus Christ wants to free me from it so that I can then go and glorify him. Now let's look at the other end of the spectrum. I thought this was kind of interesting. Let's look at the response to healing and blessing in our lives. So on one end you have Jesus coming to this guy and rebuking this demon and he's casting out demons left and right and devotionally thinking about, okay, what do I do when Jesus rebukes me? Well, let's look at the other end of the spectrum. What do I do, you know, to, how do I respond to, he, you know, blessing or healing or, you know, the outpouring of uh God's goodness in my life? Because we all want blessing, and that's fine. You know, we pray for blessing, and that's fine. We are quite blessed here in this time and place, certainly. Uh, God loves to bless. There is nothing wrong with blessing, okay? It's not that we have to go out and be ascetic and look for persecution and look for suffering and those sorts of things. But are we still responding to God when we are blessed by the Lord, or has it become commonplace in my life? That's the question that you know I was posed with in this text. 
there towards the end of the chapter in verse 37, these brand new disciples, they come, they're looking for Jesus, they find him praying, and they say, hey man, where have you been? Like, everybody's looking for you. And I do want to cut these guys a, a really a lot of slack, because I would not have done any better than Andrew or Peter or James or John, any, you know, we wouldn't have done better than these guys. But you get the feeling, you just get a vibe from the text that the people that they were talking about were a little upset that the Lord wasn't there to give them what they wanted when they wanted. They were there to get what some healing or some blessing or whatever. Again, not even necessarily a bad thing, but then they were kind of offended that he wasn't just there to like answer what they wanted him to do. You're praying? Why aren't you, you know, down here fixing my leg or healing my blindness or making me a millionaire? Why aren't you doing that, you know? And you see the multitudes here coming to Jesus not to worship him, but to get something from him. And Jesus was healing. He was casting out demons. He was blessing. It's not that those things were wrong. I mean, the Lord loves to do that stuff. But our response to God's blessing needs to be less like the multitudes in the end of the chapter and more like what we see in Peter's mother-in-law. You see her, she's sick with a fever, a relatively simple thing, even though that could have been really serious back then. But Jesus comes in, he takes her by the hand, he heals her and restores her. And the text says that her response was that she got up and served them. Uh, she got up and served the Lord and the people there in the house. It wasn't, oh Lord, thank you for taking away my fever. Now could you get to my lower back? Now could you get to the dishes over here? You know, it was a response of service and humility. Or you look at the leper in verse 40. He receives this life-changing, life-saving blessing from Christ. I mean, Jesus Christ saves his life, absolutely. And then Jesus asked him to go and be a testimony to the priests and the Levites in the temple. He says, go and do this as a testimony to them and show them what God is doing right now. Now, beyond that, the man was overwhelmed and he couldn't help but share with everyone what God had done for him. And that's a different study of, you know, about all of that. But here's the point. Heaven is working overtime right now. That's what we see in Mark chapter 1. God has gone to great lengths to bring revelation and interaction to our lives. After all, he's made us heirs and friends. That's what the Bible says. He doesn't want to hide away himself or his plan from us. Instead, he calls us heart to heart to repent, to believe, and to follow him, and then to go on responding to the things that he's saying and doing in our lives. And so how do we respond to that? Are we men that have readied our lives for the specific call of Christ to go and make disciples, or are we holding something back from God? Are we saying, well, Lord, I want to follow you, but I'm not ready to leave my net. I'm going to bring my net with me and carry it around in case I have to go back to fishing. Are we men who are listening for Christ's teachings and corrections? Or have we become comfortable with certain sins that don't seem to bother anyone? No one here seems to mind that I'm a demon-possessed guy in the synagogue, so I, I'm not really worried about that. You know, I'm not really bothering anybody, so this sin doesn't matter. Are we men who understand what incredible blessings we enjoy and respond with thankfulness and service and use them as a testimony that we share with the people around us? Or are we always moving on to the next spiritual or physical desire that we'd like God to fill like a heavenly vending machine? Are we responding to what God is saying and doing in our lives or have we become calloused against him in some way or another? Are there areas of our lives where we're more like the guys in the synagogue there who in a sense were trying to confine God down to a simple doctrine that fit nicely into their intellectual thought. You know, there in verse 27, you see the men of the synagogue almost missing the point in completely of what the, you know, Jesus does this incredible miracle and liberates this man from a demon, and they say, well, let's, let's talk about what kind of doctrine this means. And it's like, you know, you'd hope that they, that they would fall down and praise the Lord, and, and, and that's not exactly what we see. 
And so God is calling us. He's given us messages and forerunners and plain teaching and the Holy Spirit so that we might understand what it means to repent, believe, and then follow the Lord with abandon so that he can do what he's long wanted to do in us. So our job is to respond with thankfulness, with humbleness, and with willingness to see God glorified and magnified through our lives. And so let's pursue Jesus for the sake of worship, for the sake of who he is and what he's done, and let's see uh, what he wants to do and respond accordingly. Amen? All right.